Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. In this episode, we will briefly discuss the events of the summer of 1863, which culminated in the horrific Battle of Chickamauga in September 1863, and set the stage for a famous, or should I say infamous, visitor to the Shoals in October 1863. I will say up front, we will encounter more summary today than I usually like to present. We will not go as far in-depth with Chickamauga as we did with Shiloh. For one thing, Chickamauga, momentous though it was, and though certainly in the Tennessee Valley, took place about 175 miles from Florence. Shiloh, by comparison, was only 50 miles from Florence. There will be numerous parallels between these two battles we will see. I will try to provide enough information from the time to give you a good sense of the context and significance of this battle, but I will not dive so far in as I did with Shiloh. I spent about three months gathering hundreds of pages of eyewitness testimony from Shiloh. I simply can't do that here. Why we must focus on Chickamauga at all is because it grew out of the same tree that set into motion events which directly impacted the Shoals. You will remember last time we talked about the federal efforts to subdue the rebels operating in the no-man's land between the two vast columns of Union armies under Generals Grant and Rosecrans, the apex of which was the Shoals of the Tennessee River. Nimble, homegrown cavalry bands under Philip Roddy and Nathan Bedford Forrest defeated Colonel Abel Strait after a disastrous expedition over the southernmost spurs of the Appalachians in North Alabama to break General Bragg's railroad connection to Atlanta. But Union forces under General Dodge at Corinth watchfully guarded the Federal flanks, and most notably under Colonel Cornyn, made the rebels, and everyone else in their path along with them, pay dearly for the region's unruly status as a bastion for rebel insurgency. By the time of Cornyn's raid in May 1863, both Rosecrans and Grant had stalled in their respective efforts to strike the next blow into the Confederacy's strategic chain. Rosecrans faced off against Bragg at Tullahoma, as he had at Stones River on New Year's, guarding the railroad leading to Chattanooga, having made scarcely any progress in five months. Grant versus Joseph E. Johnston in central Mississippi had literally been bogged down in the Mississippi River backwaters, swamps, and bayous, trying to take the high ground stronghold of Vicksburg, which stood as the single Confederate holdout challenging Federal supremacy on the Mississippi. Without it, Confederate control of the territory west of the Mississippi River was essentially moot. Chattanooga, on the other hand, stood at a crucial railroad junction between the Deep South, the heartland of the Confederacy, most notably the junction of Atlanta, but also Mobile and Montgomery, and the eastern seaboard, especially Virginia. Chattanooga was also the gateway to controlling the long-sought East Tennessee, highly Unionist in sentiment and languishing since the war's opening act under Confederate repression. 
It was, alongside Knoxville to a lesser degree, the unquestioned target in the summer of 1863, for the Federals as a point to occupy, and for the Confederates as a point to defend. Washington was, as usual, watching nervously on. Lincoln wrote to Rosecrans on May 28th, quote, I would not push you to any rashness, but I am very anxious that you do your utmost, short of rashness, to keep Bragg from getting off to help Johnston against Grant. End quote. Strategic as East Tennessee was, this message shows how Lincoln saw that keeping Bragg occupied at Tullahoma was only a means to an end, vis-a-vis -vis keeping him too busy to reinforce Johnston at Vicksburg against General Grant. Halleck wrote to Rosecrans five days later, urging him to act, quote, If you cannot hurt the enemy now, he will soon hurt you, end quote. The winds of circumstance would soon shift, however, and the strategic focus would move back upon Chattanooga. On July 4, 1863, Rosecrans finally prevailed over Bragg at Tullahoma in a swift and relatively bloodless campaign. Tullahoma is often overshadowed today by two other critical events in the war that remarkably occurred at precisely the same moment. On the 4th of July, 1863, after a siege of 412 days, General Grant accepted the surrender of Vicksburg and federal dominance of the Mississippi was complete. And also on July 4, 1863, General Robert E. Lee's second invasion of the North was repulsed in the fields and knolls around the small college town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, after three days' fighting in what would be the bloodiest engagement of the entire war. Any hopes of European intervention on behalf of the Confederacy were all but dashed, and never again would the South fight an offensive campaign on northern soil. Rosecrans himself felt his victory at Tullahoma was not given the proper commendation from Washington that it deserved, owing to Grant's more celebrated victory and Lee's defeat at Gettysburg. Rosecrans wrote to the Secretary of War on July 7th, quote, Just received your cheering dispatch announcing the fall of Vicksburg and confirming the defeat of Lee. You do not appear to observe the fact that this noble army has driven the rebels from Middle Tennessee, of which my dispatches advised you. I beg in behalf of this army that the War Department may not overlook so great an event because it is not written in letters of blood. End quote. Rosecrans would only have to wait two months before he would preside over his own great event written in the letters of blood. Before we move forward, I want to backtrack to talk about a remarkable claimant to the SCC, Caroline Robinson. Miss Robinson was a resident of Tuscumbia at the onset of the war, and what is virtually unheard of when compared to other SCC claimants, she was a single woman, with income in her own right, and she was a person of color. The commissioners of claims and their special agents were always overtly conscious of the race of the claimants and their witnesses. 
black petitioners were generally regarded with greater suspicion than their white counterparts, and their testimony was relegated beneath that of any white witness. Some claimants were rejected on the basis that there were no white witnesses to testify on behalf of the claimants, although black witnesses had given testimony. The commissioners were not subtle about their views on Miss Robinson's race. Quote, the claimant was a free woman slightly tinged with African blood, and was loyal, no doubt, as all her race seemed to have been. End quote. Miss Robinson was 40 years old in 1863. She apparently could pass for white, as the special agent Avery pointed out. Quote, the claimant is nearly white, intelligent, and respectable looking. End quote. Both Miss Robinson and her son Willie were working professionals, she a seamstress and he a barber. Business was good, as she recalled. Quote, he made a good deal of money. I was a seamstress and had a great deal of work to do, more than I could do. End quote. About this time, which she remembered as the second year of the war, but what I perceived to be 1863, Miss Robinson moved from Tuscumbia to Lauderdale County, six miles west of Florence on the Waterloo Road. She says she had property taken by General Dodge's men on both sides of the Tennessee River. Her son William, or Willie, was also a remarkable person. At 27 years old, he told Mr. Avery he was a school teacher and explains, quote, I was born free, my mother being a free woman, end quote. What is truly astounding to me, Willie testified to Mr. Avery that when the war broke out, he was not in Alabama, he was not even in the country, but was going to school in Canada. When he returned, the federal army was in Tuscumbia. The vast majority of claimants to the SCC simply list their occupation as farmer, and many sign their name with an X. But the Robinsons were not only free people of color who were prosperous, hard-working professionals, but Willie was exceptionally well-educated in a society where education was typically reserved exclusively for the elite white planter class. Her stepfather was an SCC claimant as well, whom we met already, Woodson Armistead, who was also a free man. Mr. Armistead, like many others, would lose property to the Federal Army in 1863, which would be in Florence by October, due to events far afield and further still beyond their control. Grant's victory at Vicksburg freed up much of his army for other theaters, and also had the effect of necessitating a re-strategizing for the Confederates under Johnston. Forces were drawn into the defense of Chattanooga, the next link in the chain, gateway to Atlanta, and guard post of East Tennessee. By August, Halleck seemed even more impatient with Rosecrans than usual. East Tennessee must be liberated, the Army of the Cumberland must move. Halleck wrote to Rosecrans on August 4th, quote, Your forces must move forward without further delay. You will daily report the movement of each corps till you cross the Tennessee River. End quote. Rosecrans was somewhat sassy in his response. Quote, 
As I have been determined to cross the river as soon as practicable, and have been making all preparations, and getting such information as may enable me to do so without being driven back like Hooker, I wished to know if your order is intended to take away my discretion as to the time and manner of moving my troops. End quote. Halleck responded tersely, quote, The orders for the advance of your army and that its movements be reported daily are peremptory, end quote, which means essentially it's not up for debate. Just do it. Rosecrans continued to prattle and fuss, clearly stalling, quote, To obey your order literally would be to push our troops at once into the mountains on a narrow and difficult road, destitute of pasture and forage, and short of water, where they would not be able to maneuver as exigencies may demand, and would certainly cause ultimate delay, and probably disaster. If, therefore, the movement which I propose cannot be regarded as obedience to your order, I respectfully request a modification of it or to be relieved from the command." End quote. Halleck then spelled it out even more clearly for Rosecrans. Quote, I have communicated to you the wishes of the government in plain and unequivocal terms. The object has been stated, and you have been directed to lose no time in reaching it. The means you are to employ and the roads you are to follow are left to your own discretion. If you wish to promptly carry out the wishes of the government, you will not stop to discuss mere details." End quote. Halleck and Rosecrans already had, by this point, a rather tense relationship. Rosecrans was fond of complaining that he didn't have adequate horses and mules, while the government audited his outfit and determined between April 27th and August 17th the quartermaster had provided 9,257 horses and 5,789 mules to his army. At the end of April, Halleck wrote to Rosecrans rebuking him, under the guise of friendship, for over using the military telegraph. I include it here in full because, honestly, I find the drama in the Federal High Command very amusing. Quote, My attention has frequently been called to the enormous expense to the government of your telegrams, as much or perhaps more than that of all the other generals in the field. I have avoided writing to you on the subject, lest you might misconceive my motives, but as the habit with you seems to be increasing, and is really injuring you in the estimation of the government, I feel it my duty to you, as a personal friend, to call your attention to the matter. The truth is, you repeat again and again the same thing by telegraph, and at a very great expense to the government, without the slightest necessity. For example, you have telegraphed at least a dozen and perhaps twenty times in the last few months that you require more cavalry. The government is fully aware of your wants, and has been doing all in its power to supply them. It certainly was not necessary to remind it every day and every hour of its duty. Again, you telegraph continually about matters which require no immediate action or reply, and which might be communicated through the mails without any difficulty, delay, or injury to the public service, and with great saving to the public treasury. 
The Secretary of War directs me to call your attention particularly to one peculiar feature in your telegrams and reports. You are very particular in mentioning all your successes and all the captures from the enemy, but you do not inform the government of your defeats and losses. These we learn only through the reports of the enemy and your requisitions for reinforcements and supplies. A moment's reflection will convince you of the impropriety of this course. In order to act understanding, the government should be advised of your losses as well as your gains. This letter is not written in a spirit of fault-finding, but from a sense of duty to you and to the government." End quote. Rosecrans then provided an itemized denial of any such misconduct. Quote, if I have used the telegraph freely, it has been through an anxious desire to do my duty, and to ensure that by no fault of mine should things go unattended to, which my experience has shown may be the case, even with the most able and zealous officers without reminders. That I am very careful to inform the department of my successes and of all captures from the enemy is not true, as the records of our office will show. That I have failed to inform the government of my defeats and losses is equally untrue, both in letter and spirit. I regard the statement of these two propositions by the War Department as a profound, grievous, cruel, and ungenerous official and personal wrong. If there is any one thing I despise and scorn, it is an officer's blowing his own trumpet or getting others to do it for him. I had flattered myself that no general officer in the service had a cleaner record on this port than I have. I shall here drop the subject, leaving to time and providence the vindication of my conduct, and expect justice, kindness, and consideration only from those who are willing to accord them. Accept for yourself personally my cordial thanks for your kindness, both personal and official." End quote. As Rosecrans pushed his forces over the mountains with the object of capturing Chattanooga, General Burnside, commanding the Army of the Ohio, came down through Kentucky and Cumberland Gap to occupy Knoxville, and ultimately with the goal of uniting with General Rosecrans in a feat of dominance over East Tennessee. And thus, once again, North Alabama found itself in the crossfire, as the Tennessee Valley became the stage of a brewing showdown, much like Shiloh of the previous spring. By August 12, 1863, Huntsville was occupied by the vanguard of Rosecrans' force under Colonel Edward Moody McCook, a member of the famed Fighting McCooks, whose first cousin Robert McCook was killed near Huntsville one year and four days earlier as Buell's forces retreated north after General Bragg, while he allegedly was lying helpless in an ambulance. The Army of the Cumberland began to encamp along the Memphis and Charleston on the north bank of the Tennessee River, as they awaited the arrival of all the forces trickling over the challenging mountain roads, while the railroads were being put into working order. From reading reports, these camps were apparently breeding grounds for diseases, especially malaria. Being the dead of summer along the river bottoms, mosquitoes would have surely been a constant nagging pest. 
At this stage in medical science, however, it was not understood that mosquitoes were the carriers of bloodborne illnesses like yellow fever or malaria. Physicians of the day believed in the so-called miasmic theory of disease, which comes from the Greek for bad air, which held that stale, stagnant, or putrid air associated with unhealthy locations spread disease. While swampy, low-lying river bottoms were certainly havens for disease, the true culprit, the mosquito, was not on their minds at all. Lewis D. Watkins, colonel commanding the 3rd Brigade of Rosecrans' 1st Cavalry Division, on August 16th asked for permission to move his command back to Huntsville from Brownsboro, explaining, quote, The location of my present camp is a very unhealthy one indeed, and already several men in the command are suffering with chills and fever. The country all around is either of a low, swampy character, or too rough and hilly for cavalry to camp on, and I should like very much to move out of it." End quote. A few days later, an army medical inspector named Frank Hamilton toured Union Army camps along the Tennessee River and reported to Rosecrans of his findings. He too noticed a prevalence of malaria owing to the character of the landscape. Quote, the bottomlands are in a great measure uncultivated, and although not very wet, they are covered by a luxuriant and tangled undergrowth of vegetation, which fills the valley with malaria. The air of the valley is but little disturbed by the prevailing winds. Hot, dry, and sultry days are followed by damp and chilly nights the night fogs being exceedingly heavy and hanging over the valley and upon the sides of the mountains until some time after the sun has risen. The troops encamped at Stevenson, Bridgeport, and other points which I have visited in the valley are already beginning to suffer from malarial fevers, both remittent and intermittent, generally of a mild character, but new cases are occurring in such numbers as to occasion some anxiety as to the result if the army should be required to remain long in this position." End quote. Hamilton had apparently interviewed a local medical doctor, who recommended a rather surprising remedy to combat so-called congestive fevers. Quote, I am informed by Dr. Thomas L. Madden, professor of surgery in the Shelby Medical College, Nashville, and formerly a resident practitioner of North Alabama, that later in the season, congestive fevers of a highly pernicious type occur in this valley. I take the liberty of stating also that he recommends the cold water effusion or dash as the most effectual method of arresting the chill, and as an internal remedy, he recommends a powder composed as follows. Take quinine, one dram, calomel, one half scruple, opium, five grains, cayenne pepper, twelve grains. Divide into six powders. Take one powder every two hours, commencing, if possible, twelve hours before the next paroxysm, and to be given without any reference to the fever. End quote. Inspector Hamilton added, for good measure, quote, The reputation for skill and scientific attainments which Dr. Madden enjoys here and elsewhere entitle his opinion to special consideration. End quote. 
he did add, as a positive note to end on, that scurvy, which he refers to as scorbutic taint, was largely unheard of, because the region provided enough agricultural bounty to supply the wants of the soldiers, but was on the verge of total depletion. Quote, in addition to the corn, onions, tomatoes, potatoes, peaches, apples, etc., which they have been able to purchase, they have found immense quantities of blackberries in the open fields and on the roadsides, of which they have eaten freely. So ample have been the supplies of vegetables and fruits that the scorbutic taint has now almost entirely disappeared from the army. Most of these supplies, furnished by the country through which we have been passing, are now nearly exhausted, and as the season advances, they will soon completely disappear. End quote. Soon thereafter, Rosecrans himself would be on the banks of the Tennessee River. His forces stretched throughout North Alabama, as Halleck recalled later in 1863. Quote, Having put the railroad in condition to forward supplies, Rosecrans on the 16th of August commenced his advance across the Cumberland Mountains, Chattanooga and its covering ridges on the southeast being his objective point. In order to command and avail himself of the most important passes, the front of his movement extended from the head of Sequatchie Valley in East Tennessee to Athens, Alabama, thus threatening the line of the Tennessee River from Whitesburg to Blythe's Ferry, a distance of over 150 miles. End quote. As Halleck mentioned, this movement was largely dependent upon the resurfacing of the railroads to act as a means to furnish his massive army with supplies. The labor to complete this task was undertaken largely by formerly enslaved black people, many of whom actually, for the first time in the war, wore U.S. Army uniforms as members of so-called colored regiments. By August, as the Army of the Cumberland prepared to cross the Tennessee River, black regiments guarded the railroad bridges between Nashville and the Tennessee River, as William Doback explains in his book, Freedom by the Sword. Quote, the two regiments from the Department of the Cumberland became the 12th and 13th USCIs. The 12th filled the last of its ten companies in August 1863. By the end of September, more than 300 of its officers and men were guarding Elk River Bridge, halfway between Nashville and Chattanooga, on the rail line that supplied Union troops in southeastern Tennessee. End quote. In addition to laboring on the railroads, black people from North Alabama were also employed as orderlies and attendants in army hospitals behind federal lines in Middle Tennessee, as the following dispatch reveals. Quote, the general commanding directs that you furnish a detail to relieve a detachment of the 10th Ohio Volunteer Infantry, now guarding the remainder of the contrabands at this place, lately brought by your command from Huntsville, Alabama. He further directs that you make immediate provision for having these contrabands forwarded to Gallatin, Tennessee, to be employed in hospitals, etc., under charge of the commanding officer at that post. End quote. As we saw earlier in the war, participation by black people in the war effort was not purely voluntary. As contrabands of war, they were employed 
and not enslaved, which at first glance seems to have been largely a semantic distinction. Federal authorities, especially the military governor of Tennessee, Andrew Johnson, remained explicitly distrustful and dismissive of the value of black people as soldiers, and complained to Washington, as Doback describes, at first quoting Governor Johnson, quote, we need more laborers now than can be obtained to sustain the rear of General Rosecrans' army, Johnson wrote. Major Stearns proposes to organize and place them in a military camp, where they in fact remain idle. All the Negroes will quit work when they can go into camp and do nothing. We must control them for both purposes. Johnson's concern about controlling the labor of newly freed black people based on the mistaken idea that they preferred idleness to work was common among federal authorities in all parts of the South. End quote. Yet, critically, although they still were relegated to be strictly laborers, black men in uniform who volunteered to help the Union cause were paid by the United States government as servicemen for the first time in the Tennessee Valley. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll examine the events of Chickamauga and rather surprising facts about the Tennessee River in the 19th century. Please stay with us. As the Army of the Cumberland made preparations to cross the Tennessee River, it remained possible that the Army may simply walk across the river rather than having to construct bridges. Ultimately, the crossing of wagons and artillery would depend upon the construction of bridges. It is astounding to realize how different the Tennessee River was in 1863 from what we see in the 21st century. The TVA has turned the modern river into a series of lakes between dams. The lakes are deep and expansive. When the Army of the Cumberland arrived on its banks in August 1863, it was a wild river, and at places as shallow as a swimming pool. As the following reconnaissance report, dated August 27th from a certain Captain James Hawley, illustrates, quote, I forded over halfway across the Tennessee River last evening on Hart's Bar. There was a citizen present, Mr. Wallace, who pointed out the direction of the ford. At first, the citizen considered it unfordable, from the fact that there was bare ground on the bar visible when it was fordable. I forded until the water became very shallow on the bar, exposing too much of my person to the enemy's pickets on the other side. In crossing the channel, I found in no place it was over four feet deep. I sent a mounted man one hundred yards in as deep and heavy a current as in the distance I forded. The horse moved firmly through the current, the water coming halfway up his sides. I believe the river fordable for either mounted or footmen, and am willing to take fifty men and cross if the general commanding desires. I had two men with me one of them five feet five inches in height, still experiencing no difficulty in fording." End quote. The river was apparently so shallow, in fact, Hawley was worried he was too exposed to enemy fire with most of his upper body above the waterline. 
The same day Captain Hawley wrote his report, Colonel Lewis Watkins informed Brigadier General Garfield that the rebels had been busy sabotaging the federal efforts with an old familiar tactic, bridge burning. Quote, the following bridges were destroyed by guerrillas yesterday. Indian Creek Bridge, eight miles from Huntsville, Limestone Bridge, six miles from Huntsville, and Piney Bridge, 19 miles from Huntsville, all on Memphis and Charleston Railroad between Huntsville and Tennessee River. End quote. Around this time, Colonel Daniel McCook, another of the fighting McCooks, wrote to Major General Granger at Columbia, complaining of seditious rebel women in the community of Pulaski, requesting that they be expelled south of federal lines. Quote, Some such decided measures as you adopted at Franklin must be adopted here and at Pulaski to break the necks of the rebels. Mrs. Hunter, on Carter's Creek should be sent south. She, and daughter, says she helped to burn the bridges before and will do it again. All the families you sent from Franklin should be sent south of the Tennessee. They spread wide dissatisfaction." End quote. Federal correspondence shows how rebels remained as active on the south bank of the Tennessee as the Army of the Cumberland was on the north side. General Granger wrote to General Rosecrans from Nashville on August 30th, quote, It is reported that Forrest is at Cortland and Roddy at Tuscumbia. What's the news? End quote. And the same day, Brigadier General James D. Morgan wrote to Brigadier General Garfield from Athens, quote, Rebel force reported at Decatur, Bainbridge, Cortland, and Tuscumbia. General Forrest is reported at Cortland. The courier will wait for answer at Huntsville. End quote. In light of the cataclysmic battle that was coming, unknown to anyone at the time, what happened next was ironically anticlimactic. On Friday, August 21st, 1863, four federal regiments and three pieces of artillery under Colonel J.T. Wilder arrived opposite Chattanooga and began exchanging fire with the rebel batteries in the town. Colonel Wilder surmised that the rebel presence in Chattanooga was minimal. Quote, my impression is that they have no large force here. Their guns do not seem to be large ones. Their practice is also bad. End quote. Wilder also noticed movements on the outskirts of town, visible by the plumes of dust kicked up by the thousands of marching men and animals over the dry dirt roads. Quote, Clouds of dust are now rising in all directions south of the river. I can see no camps. Citizens, prisoners, and deserters say that Bragg has about 30,000 men, including his cavalry. End quote. At 9 o'clock on the morning of September 2nd, a pontoon bridge was completed at Bridgeport to allow the Federal forces to spill over the Tennessee en route for Chattanooga. By 3.30 that afternoon, apparently, half of the bridge had floated away, with repairs expected to take 12 hours more. The obstacle was passed, though, and the Army of the Cumberland began taking possession of the various mountains, passes, and ridges to the southwest of Chattanooga as the first week of September closed. 
As September progressed, the Federals seemed to be making incredible progress, close, though they were, to an entrenched and expectant enemy under General Bragg. The Federal Command was uncertain of rebel objectives, but it seemed likely that the Confederates were on the verge of sacrificing East Tennessee for the sake of defending Virginia. I will quote here from Halleck's report explaining the events at this juncture. Quote, General Crittenden's reconnaissance on the 9th developed the fact that the enemy had evacuated Chattanooga on the day and night previous. While General Crittenden's corps took peaceable possession of Chattanooga, the objective point of the campaign, General Rosecrans, with the remainder of his army, pressed forward through the difficult passes of the Lookout and Missionary Mountains, apparently directing his march upon Lafayette and Rome. On ascertaining these facts, and that General Burnside was in possession of all East Tennessee above Chattanooga, and hearing that Robert E. Lee was being rapidly reinforced on the Rapidan, it seemed probable that the enemy had determined to concentrate his forces for the defense of Richmond, or a new invasion of the North. The slight resistance made by him in East Tennessee, and his abandonment without defense of so important a position as Chattanooga, gave plausibility to the reports of spies and deserters from Lee's army of reinforcements arriving there from Bragg. End quote. Despite the apparent success with the objective point of the mission, Chattanooga securely in federal hands, Halleck, however, was concerned that Rosecrans' army may be drawn too far into the mountains of North Georgia, where they would be ill-supplied and likely fall prey to the Confederates. He wanted Rosecrans to dig in around Chattanooga and await orders to either advance further south or direct his attentions toward the east through the mountains into Virginia or North Carolina as a counterweight to General Lee in Virginia. Rosecrans reports that he sent forward scouting expeditions on September 10th to determine the position and strength of the rebels at his front. Rosecrans apparently believed, as Halleck recalled, quote, that although he was sufficiently strong for the enemy then in his front, there were indications that the rebels intended to turn his flanks and cut his communications. He therefore desired that Burnside should move down his infantry toward Chattanooga on his left, and that Grant should cover the Tennessee River toward Whitesburg to prevent any raid on Nashville. He was of the opinion that no troops had been sent east from Bragg's army, but that Bragg was being reinforced by luring from Mississippi." End quote. It therefore became a real possibility that Bragg would not go east at all, but while Rosecrans was distracted at Chattanooga, may return to North Alabama, cross the Tennessee River, and threaten Nashville, which was, ultimately, Rosecrans' base of supply, as Halleck explained to Burnside on September 13th. Quote, Move your infantry as rapidly as possible toward Chattanooga, and connect with Rosecrans. Bragg may merely hold the passes of the mountains to cover Atlanta, and move his main army through northern Alabama to reach the Tennessee River, and turn Rosecrans right, and cut off his supplies. End quote. 
Washington was becoming increasingly alarmed. In order to further safeguard Rosecrans from this possibility, the same day, Halleck also gave orders to General Hurlbut at Memphis, quote, All your available forces should be sent to Corinth and Tuscumbia to operate against Bragg should he attempt to turn Rosecrans right and recross the river into Tennessee. Send to General Sherman at Vicksburg for reinforcements for this purpose. End quote. Not only was it a possibility that Bragg would send his forces around Rosecrans' flank, it also seemed evident to commanders in the West that Johnston's forces in Mississippi, the former defenders of Vicksburg, were moving east through the shoals in order to reinforce General Bragg. General Hurlbut reported to Halleck from Memphis a bit of reconnaissance he received from a black woman who had fled behind federal lines from Tuscumbia. Quote, from a contraband refugee woman who left Tuscumbia Sunday, I learned that there were several thousand of Johnston's infantry there, marching to Decatur. Roddy has left for Decatur, leaving 500 men under Major Moreland to guard the Tennessee Valley. End quote. Halleck's orders were fateful for the Shoals. His stipulation that Sherman be sent via Corinth and Tuscumbia to operate against Rosecrans would have immediate implications for the citizens of northwest Alabama and in the events of the war to come. Amazingly, in a strange case of déjà vu, just as we saw at Shiloh, General Halleck though he was not even present on the scene, seemed to have a crystal ball about what was just over the horizon. By the middle of September, he could see clearly that Rosecrans had become the target of all rebel offensive efforts in the West, as he explained to General Grant on the very day before the start of the Battle of Chickamauga. Quote, I wish all available troops on the Mississippi sent to Tuscumbia or farther up the Tennessee River to cover General Rosecrans' right and secure his communications. It was believed from all the information we could obtain that Lee's army was to be greatly reinforced. It now appears that all of Johnston's forces and at least three large divisions of Lee's army have joined Bragg. Probably the advance of Burnside and Rosecrans into East Tennessee and the danger of the rebel arsenals at Atlanta have changed their plans. At any rate, Rosecrans is now the main object of their attack, and he must be strengthened by all the means in our power. End quote. And Sherman, while not personally on the scene this time as he was at Shiloh, nevertheless was dismissive and overconfident as he was a year and a half before, as he wrote on September 20th. Quote, I have mobile papers of the 16th, much feeling against Bragg for abandoning Tennessee. They expect a battle in Georgia, but I see no indication of a fight. End quote. Unbeknownst to Sherman, as he was writing those words, the fight he saw no indication of was in its third and final day, and would prove to be the bloodiest battle of the entire war to take place on southern soil. Much has been written about Chickamauga. 
Interestingly, a mammoth work I consulted called The Truth About Chickamauga was written by Colonel Archibald Gracie, whose own father was present at the battle. Gracie is most famous for being a survivor of the Titanic disaster. He survived the frigid night, standing with dozens of other men atop of an overturned collapsible lifeboat. He spent the months after the sinking gathering survivor testimony, and his work is a cornerstone of historical documentation regarding the sinking. Quite interestingly, he had just finished writing the truth about Chickamauga and was apparently promoting it to fellow passengers during the voyage by his own admission. Gracie not only corresponded with living witnesses to the battle from both sides, many of whom would have been in their 60s and 70s by then, he pored over the official records, much as I have done, with a very diligent and critical eye. In the preface, Gracie described how, in his opinion, all hopes of Confederate independence were dashed at Chickamauga. Quote, there was no more important battle of the Confederate war than Chickamauga. The high water mark of this issue, Southern Independence, was reached on this 20th day of September 1863, more than on any other occasion where the decision was left to the arbitrament of arms. End quote. It is curious that such a fateful outcome would be the result of what was, by all imagination, a Confederate victory. Federal forces crossed the Tennessee River and began trickling over the mountains and up through the various gaps and valleys northeastward toward the recently occupied Chattanooga, all the while being closely watched by the rebel cavalry. Bragg knew he could not hold on to the city, and instead withdrew south into North Georgia, hoping for a more advantageous moment to strike. On September 11th, two advanced federal divisions under Generals Negley and Baird encountered a heavy rebel force. According to Rosecrans, here General Negley, quote, became satisfied that the enemy was advancing upon him in heavy force, and perceiving that if he accepted battle in that position he would probably be cut off, he fell back after a sharp skirmish, end quote. Reinforcements arrived on the 12th, and it was determined as well that the rebels had not fallen back to Rome, but were in fact massing their entire force at Lafayette, Georgia, less than 30 miles from Chattanooga. The weather was hot and clear. The roads were dusty. Both commanders, Rosecrans and Bragg, complained in their official reports that the narrowness of the country lanes made moving their armies difficult. General Bragg reported to Richmond from Lafayette on September 14th, quote, We have so far failed to encounter the enemy in any force. Whenever we make our appearance, he retires before us. His policy seems to be to avoid an engagement. We shall press him as long as able to subsist. End quote. And on September 16th, Bragg issued General Orders Number 180, preparing his forces for battle. 
Quote, the troops will be held ready for an immediate move against the enemy. His demonstration on our flank has been thwarted, and twice he has retired before us when offered battle. We must now force him to the issue. End quote. General Bragg gave orders and detailed battle plans to his generals on the night of September 17th. Movement was to commence at 6 a.m. the following morning. On September 18, 1863, rebel forces began crossing a winding creek south of Chattanooga called Chickamauga and encountered the largely disjointed Federal Army. At the close of the day, rebel and Federal lines were planted only a few hundred yards apart, and Colonel Wilder reported he was unsupported and in danger of falling back. Fighting broke out and raged on the 19th, with haphazard efforts by Bragg to get behind the Federal lines and cut them off from Chattanooga. By the end of the day's fighting on the 19th, Bragg continued to receive reinforcements, while Federals, by all indications, were moving up the Chickamauga, withdrawing toward the safe hold at Chattanooga. Despite the advantageous circumstances they now enjoyed at nightfall, the Confederates would meet with blunders the next day, which would give the Federals opportunities to check the rebel assault to safeguard the retreat. That night, as Bragg recalled, quote, Upon the close of the engagement on the evening of the 19th, the proper commanders were summoned to my camp fire, and there received specific information and instructions touching the dispositions of the troops and for the operations of the next morning. The whole force was divided for the next morning into two commands, and assigned to the two senior lieutenant generals, Longstreet and Polk. The former to the left, where all his own troops were stationed, the latter continuing his command of the right. Lieutenant General Longstreet reached my headquarters about 11 p.m. and immediately received his instructions. After a few hours' rest at my camp, he moved at daylight to his line just in front of my position. Lieutenant General Polk was ordered to assail the enemy on our extreme right at day dawn on the 20th and to take up the attack in succession rapidly to the left. The left wing was to await the attack by the right, take it up promptly when made, and the whole line was then to be pushed vigorously and persistently against the enemy throughout its extent. Before the dawn of day, myself and staff were ready for the saddle, occupying a position immediately in rear of and accessible to all parts of the line. With increasing anxiety and disappointment, I waited until after sunrise without hearing a gun, and at length dispatched a staff officer to Lieutenant General Polk to ascertain the cause of the delay and urge him to a prompt and speedy movement. This officer, not finding the general with his troops and learning where he had spent the night, proceeded across Alexander's Bridge to the east side of the Chickamauga and there delivered my message. Proceeding in person to the right wing, I found the troops not even prepared for the movement. Messengers were immediately dispatched for Lieutenant General Polk, and he shortly after joined me 
My orders were renewed, and the general was urged to their prompt execution, the more important as the ear was saluted through the night with the sounds of the axe and falling timber as the enemy industriously labored to strengthen his position by hastily constructed barricades and breastworks. End quote. These federal breastworks were effective in staying the rebel attack until about 4 p.m. when a concerted effort was made until about nightfall on the 20th. The federal lines broke. However, Bragg explained, the cover of darkness and thickness of the woods prevented any follow-through from the Confederates. One federal commander, Major General George Thomas, famously held his troops in line in the face of this reinvigorated rebel assault, for which he would famously earn himself the nickname the Rock of Chickamauga. While the right and center of Rosecrans' line buckled, Thomas held the line until nightfall and took possession of the town of Rossville, covering the federal withdrawal to Chattanooga. Morning of the 21st revealed to Bragg that the Federal main body had retreated within the lines at Chattanooga during the night, as Bragg expressed, quote, Any immediate pursuit by our infantry and artillery would have been fruitless, as it was not deemed practicable with our weak and exhausted force to assail the enemy, now more than double our numbers behind his entrenchments, though we had defeated him and driven him from the field with heavy loss in men, arms, and artillery. It had only been done by heavy sacrifices." End quote. Lieutenant General James Longstreet recalled what happened next, as Bragg consulted him about what the next move should be. Quote, Early on the 21st, the commanding general stopped at my bivouac and asked my views as to our future movements. I suggested crossing the river above Chattanooga so as to make ourselves sufficiently felt upon the enemy's rear as to force his evacuation of Chattanooga, and indeed force him back upon Nashville, and if we should find our transportation inadequate for a continuance of this movement to follow up the railroad to Knoxville, destroy Burnside, and and from there threatened the enemy's railroad communication in rear of Nashville. This I supposed to be the only practicable flank movement, owing to the scarcity of our transportation, and it seemed to keep us very nearly as close to the railroad as we were at the time. At parting, I understood the commanding general to agree that such was probably our best move, and that he was about to give the necessary orders for its execution." End quote. Longstreet's plans would prove to be pie in the sky. After vigorously driving in the Federal Army for the better part of three days, Bragg decided to not pursue them any longer after they had fallen back upon Chattanooga. There would be no flanking maneuver across the Tennessee or to Knoxville. Gracie described this decision in no uncertain terms. Quote, the halt to Confederate pursuit from a military standpoint was the most stupendous blunder of the war. End quote. 
Had he chosen to descend upon Chattanooga and force Rosecrans' routed forces to make yet another stand, it is likely that Rosecrans would have fallen back north of the Tennessee and possibly even upon Nashville. Or if he had acted quickly and decisively on the morning of the 21st, the stragglers of the Federal Army may have been forced to surrender. The war in the West would have again turned in favor of the Confederates, perhaps for good. The losses were indeed staggering, shocking even, and personally, I think Bragg can be excused for not wanting to launch an offensive campaign on the heels of what his army had just been through. In the three days fighting, the Confederates suffered 18,454 casualties, killed, wounded, and missing. The Federals suffered 16,170 killed, wounded, and missing. Though it would be counted as a Confederate victory, the results of the battle would only lead to further Federal incursions in the South. Bragg would blame his subordinates for their lack of initiative and failure to follow his instructions, which only increased his already infamous unpopularity. He would only remain as head of the Army of Tennessee through the end of the year. Chattanooga would remain a federal stronghold, and, in a few months' time, would become a springboard to threaten the state of Georgia and the boomtown junction of Atlanta. Georgia would be made to howl, and the nails of the Confederacy's coffin would be driven in, under direction of a brilliant but ruthless military genius with whom we will get well acquainted in the next episode, William Tecumseh Sherman. Join me in a supplemental episode where I read Sherman's very memorable and quotable letter to Halleck about his opinion of the war and the southern people, and stay tuned for updates about another full-length episode upcoming this November. And thank you so much for joining me.